0: Good morning, New Hope Church. It's glad you're with us this morning. Even though we're live streaming, we're so glad you're joining us. My name is Joe Testa. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with The Greenhouse, which is our college age and young adult ministry. Uh, I just want to say thank you to you. If you've served in the armed forces, we are so glad that you have done that and we are so thankful that you protect us and have been involved with that that service. I want to also say one of the exciting things for me this week is I got to marry my my daughter. My oldest daughter got married and we had one of the greatest celebrations. So there's a lot of good things going on in our world and um, I'm just excited to be here with you. Thanks for being with us. Um, Let's pray and then we'll dive into what I believe God has for us today. Would you join me? Father, we say thanks to you today. We say thanks to you for your work in our lives. We say thanks to you for drawing us into relationship with Jesus. We say thanks to you for just being our God and and loving us like you do. And we just look to you right now. We ask that you would teach us, God. You would, would reveal more of who you are to us through your word, that we would have a better understanding so that we could follow you, so that we could obey you. God, help us not to just be hearers, but to be doers of your word. And so we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever witnessed like a large-scale construction project going on. One of the, maybe one of these big apartment building complexes that are being, you know, that are going up along Grand River over on near MSU's campus. There is, uh, there's one that's kind of stood out to me specifically. It's, um, it's right in the corner of Bogue and Grand River and it's called the Hub on Campus. And it's just this massive apartment building structure that is, and my understanding is there's actually a pool on the top of this apartment building complex. And um, what's fascinated fascinated me the most as I would drive by is how long it took to dig and establish the foundation. You know, uh, if if the project, let's say it took a year and a half, and I'm not sure if that's exactly what it took, it seemed like the first six months were devoted to just laying this amazing foundation. And so for six months, it looked like to me, somebody who doesn't have much of a trained eye for construction, it looked like very little was going on, you know. Um, But to the construction managers, that foundation has to be perfect or very, very bad things could happen. And so they dug this massive hole and they started putting in uh, these reinforcements and they drove them deep into the earth. And that was just around the perimeter of the entire property. And then they started pouring the concrete and and the rebar and and, um, and all of the reinforcements that were needed. And so all of that was done. And it it seemed like, again, it took a long, long time. Today, we're looking at the final section of Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And we're going to see Paul close this letter focusing on establishing foundations. Lasting groundwork that was essential to living a faithful life as a follower of Jesus. Something that you could build your life on. If you've been with us, we've titled this series The the Church at Her Best. If you're new with us, this is really a phenomenal story of the power of God. If you get a chance, I encourage you to read it sometime over the next week. These people came to faith and they experienced tremendous life transformation. They, they turned from idols to follow Jesus. And what you see is this incredible ripple effect that is felt throughout this entire region of the world. Churches all over uh, the, the area there were, were affected by what God did in these people's lives. What I love about this letter is that these Thessalonians, these these Thessalonian Christians new to the faith, they actually became an example to others of what it might look like to follow wholeheartedly after Jesus. And so Paul said in chapter 1 that they became an example to all the believers in, in Achaia and Macedonia, which says that you don't have to be old in the faith for God to use you to turn the world upside down. This letter has had a huge impact on my life. And it has challenged me to think about my foundations. Especially in light of what we've all wrestled with over the last couple of months. I've been challenged in ways that I would never have anticipated for 2020. I felt more sadness, impatience, angst, and struggle in the last three months than I have in a long time. And as I said many times, trials reveal... And for me, this worldwide pandemic has revealed to me some real ugliness. And so if you've wrestled with that yourself, know that you're not alone. And so as we close this letter today, we're going to look at three attributes of God. And we're going to kind of do a deeper dive on those. And then we're going to look at kind of quick, four quick thoughts that Paul shares that um, as he kind of closes things up. So the three things we're going to look at are, we're going to look at this idea of the God of peace, and his power to accomplish his purposes. We're going to look at God's power to keep us and to help us preserve us in our faith, to keep us and help us to continue to follow after him all the days of our life. And then three, God's faithfulness. And Paul does something unique with his closing. He, He frames this as a prayer for these people. So let's just jump right in. If you have a Bible, you can flip Or uh, if you have a web-enabled device, you can tap your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 23. And this is what we read. Paul writes this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so the first foundation is this. The God of peace will sanctify you completely. Well, we're going to look at both key concepts that Paul talks about here. First, we're going to talk about the God of peace. And then we're going to look at the work, uh, his work of sanctifying us completely. So first, this is who God is. He's the God of peace. Now, peace is largely what's missing in our world today. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I, uh, I have family and friends that are calling me all the time going, what the heck is going on in Michigan? You have people that are protesting outside of your state capitol building with weapons. I mean, that is the opposite of of a a peaceful situation. Almost everything we've enjoyed has been affected by this worldwide pandemic. The way we relate to each other, uh, our sense of community, both inside and outside of the church has been kind of upheaved. But even more than anything, uh, what we've seen in, in, in our world is a world that's full of unrest. And so more than anything, we need the God of peace in our lives. We need that what's true of our God to be true of our lives. Paul talks about being imitators of God in other places in the New Testament. This is where we need to be an imitator of God. And so how do we specifically understand what this phrase God of peace means for us? Well, first, there's a clear sense that because of what Jesus has done for us in his death burial, and, dear death, burial, and resurrection, that we have peace with God. If you have come to God by faith and you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus, you now are at peace with God. That means you're, there's no, you're no longer at odds with him. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith and forgiven forever. That word justified means legally rendered not guilty. He's wiped the slate clean. We're no longer alienated from God because of our sin. And that's really good news. But I think there's more going on with this phrase than just being at peace with God. I think when Paul talks about the the God of peace, you would hear an echo back to the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is Paul's Bible. And so when people would think and hear that phrase, the God of peace, that would remind people of the well-being that God provided for them. It was more than peace in this present world. It, It looked forward to the ultimate peace that would come when God would send his Messiah when Jesus would arrive on the scene, the return of Christ. So when you hear that phrase, God of peace, I think it evokes a sense similar to that old hymn, it's well with my soul. Listen to the words of this song. The writer says this, when peace like a, a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it's well It is well with my soul. And then the second verse, I love this one too. It says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. So whether things are going well and, and, you know, we have peace like a river or like, you know, things are going very badly for us. Like, sorrow is like sea billows roll. When when you're being bombarded by Satan's temptation and attack, or trials are pushing you to the edge of what you can handle, what you think you can handle, the God of peace has given you a sense that it is well with your soul. So today we're reminded that regardless of our circumstances... Because we know the God of peace, it is well with our souls. We're also reminded of this, that this world is temporary. This means that even if we get another round of this virus, as, as a, one of our modern day theologians sings, Carrie Underwood, she says, this is our temporary home. And other, other New Testament writers have framed it like this. We're aliens and strangers. We're exiles. We're on pilgrimage to our true home, to... We're citizens of another world. And so God wants to be the God of peace to us right now. Now, when things get better, but right now, right now you can experience the well-being of knowing God as the God of peace. And so God wants to be our God of peace right here, right now. Paul, his his prayer continues. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So Paul starts that foundations prayer with that phrase, the God of peace. And now he says that that same God will sanctify us completely. Look at how how Paul phrases, who's doing the work. He says this, he says that God of peace himself And what I I did in my notes is I have that in all caps. And so I don't know if you ever get an email from somebody in all caps, but it usually means they're yelling at you or they're trying to emphasize something, right? So for me, this is just to give a major emphasis that God is doing a work in us. This isn't the only place in the New Testament that we see Paul write this either. I mean, in another place, Paul says, he says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we see in this prayer that God is almighty God. He's powerful to accomplish his work in us. Well, what's this work? It's the work of sanctifying us completely. And just a quick review, if you're new with us, that word sanctify means this. It means set apart for God's exclusive use. Instead of we just kind of moving on, did you catch that? You know, God wants to sanctify you. He wants, he says he's going to to do it. And that means he's, he wants to set us apart for his exclusive use and purpose. Now, when I hear that, I feel like those are super sobering words to me. This isn't just tack Jesus on to your plans for your life. This is Jesus. Have your way in me. Do what you want in and through my life. Take my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Consecrated, set apart for a special purpose, dedicated to a special purpose. So Paul is developing something a bit here. If you were to put one finger here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and flip back just a page in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you would see another place where he talks about sanctification in this letter. He says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he defines it even more clearly. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so God is at work in us and we're reminded here that it's his will that we be sanctified. He wants to set us apart for his exclusive use. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I read this, the first question that comes to my mind is this. Like, how does this, how does this work? What's my role? Like, do I just sit back and do nothing and I become like Jesus? Jesus? That's a great question. I like how Warren Wiersbe addresses this topic. The Bible actually teaches three types of sanctification. I'm going to geek out on, on you here for just a little bit. The first type is something called positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. And positional sanctification is this. Uh, we can look at it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And the, the writer says this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Another translation says this, for by one sacrifice, the sacrifice is Jesus. He, God the Father, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so if you're in Christ, Jesus' sacrifice has made you perfect forever while you're being made holy, while you're being sanctified. That's positional sanctification. It's based on your position In Christ. Next there's practical sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. This is where we have, it seems like we have more of a role. And I'm going to get into this a little bit here. Paul writes this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so this would be us, And I still believe God working in us where we say, no more. That thing that keeps tripping me up, I'm going to put a boundary in place. I refuse to go there anymore by the grace of God, by the gospel working in my life, by the power of the Holy Spirit and work in my life. I'm not going to those places anymore. No more hanging with those friends. No more engaging the flesh. No more playing around with fire. You know, I, I work with young people. And, I, and, and and so I just, I spend so little time trying to get people to stop doing a specific sin. Because until you deal with the root issue, the, the heart that's behind that, you aren't going to see lasting change. So... We need to invite God and those we're close to to help us kind of peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak, to see what's going on at more of a root level. And when you get to things at that level and apply the gospel, I think you're going to experience a lot more of this sanctifying work in your life. That's our responsibility. It's to yield to God's spirit at work in us. Wesley says all of this, you know, the positional and the perfect sanctification will culminate in, excuse me, the positional and the practical sanctification will culminate in perfect sanctification. And that perfect sanctification happens when we see Jesus and we become eternally like him. 1 John 3, 2, John writes this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be Has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. I don't know about you, but that is something to be excited about, to long for, to look forward to. To be like Him is what you were intended to be. To be like Him is what the original design for humanity was. Can you imagine what that day will be like? To no longer have to struggle and stumble, to be free from the sin nature, to to be holy, perfect, because of the the blood of Christ, and then to experience perfect sanctification because of the presence of Christ. Let's keep going. Paul continues uh, with his foundational prayer. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second foundation we have is this. God is the one who keeps us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul's prayer is radical that God would keep these people and us blameless. Well, that word blameless in the Greek is, this, is the word ememptos. And it means with no legitimate ground for accusation. It also means to be free from fault or defect. And I'll be honest, when, when I see that word, I, I just feel tension and conflict. And the reason I feel that is because I know I'm not blameless. I know that I wrestle with sin in my life. And so I'm far from blameless. If anything, I see my sin more clearly today than ever. Maybe you do too. Maybe, maybe this pandemic has exposed in you lots of things that you didn't even know were there. For me, I've seen all these little idols kind of popping up in my life. Things that I cling to for joy and hope and peace. And so when they're taken from me, I, I kick and scream a little or sometimes a lot. I felt hemmed in by God more in the past couple of months. I've struggled being under authority. I've struggled honoring my authorities in my heart and sometimes outwardly. I have had all kinds of conflicting emotions. I've really oscillated between trusting and resting in in God's provision and love for my life and, and wanting to control my circumstances. My point is this, I'm so thankful that God is the one who keeps us and that he is the one who establishes us as blameless. You're not blameless because of you. You're blameless because of Christ. He transferred his blameless status to to you when he hung and bled and died on a cross. He made you so that you could stand before the throne of God blameless. Because he took all the blame off of you and put it on himself. So that you could become something that you could never be on your own. And if you're watching and you wonder why Christians give their lives to follow this Jesus, why we serve and we give and we lay our lives down for for him and for other people. It's right here. It's the gospel. It's the most amazing reality this world will ever know. Just like that old hymn writer said, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. So how does he do it? How does God keep us blameless? Well, three things. First, he puts his spirit in us to keep us. The Bible actually speaks a lot about the Holy Spirit's role in our life, and we can see that in many different places. In one of those places in the New Testament mentions that he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is God in us to accomplish his purposes in and through us. Second, he puts us in his church. We're placed into the body, Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The church is huge to our sanctification and preservation. I mentioned earlier that verse in Philippians 1.6 that says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, if you were to back up just one verse to Philippians chapter 1.5, you would see this. Paul writes, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so when we really see the way that this this worked itself out in the New Testament, these people linked arms together, arm in arm. The church was very much a part of their life. And so you can see the interconnectedness, again, of Christians and the church. So maybe at this point, you've been on the outskirts of of the church. And as as we move back toward reconnecting and reopening here, Now could be the perfect time to get more connected into the discipleship, the heart of New Hope Church. So the first one is he gave us his spirit. Then he put us in the church. And the third one is he gave us his word. Listen to this. You know, God has blessed us with his promises. Promises that have the power to produce hope and steadfastness. Peter tells us these promises are so powerful That through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. So, God's promises have the power to transform our lives and to make us like Jesus. And so, our foundation becomes immovable when we look at who God is. As Almighty God, He's able to hold us and keep us blameless at the coming of His Son. That's so encouraging. And so, Paul brings us to the last part of his prayer in verse 24. He says this, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so our third foundational truth of who God is is right here. He's faithful. God is faithful. The faithfulness of God means that God will do what he said he will do. Specifically, God initiated faith with you. We see that there he says he calls you. He called you into a relationship with himself. He'll keep you and help you and hold you as blameless at the parousia, the return of his son. Again, how much of our own walk do we often think we're holding on to Jesus when in reality Jesus has us securely in the palm of his hands? What a way to end this letter. I mean, you can't put a bigger exclamation point on a letter than this. God is faithful and he will surely do it. He will fulfill his promises. He'll do what he said he will do. And what makes God so trustworthy is not only his unchangeable character, but also that he has the power to do what he said he will do. See, we live in a world where even the most faithful Person isn't always faithful, and they don't have the power to always do what they say they're going to do. But God is different; He's not like people, and He has left evidence of His faithfulness all over the place. Like you see, the faithful character of God displayed all throughout His Word, over and over again. God makes a promise to Abraham. To Abraham, He says, "I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a child." in your old age, and I'm going to bless the nations through that child. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. And then what happens? Sarah gets pregnant and Isaac is born. God is faithful. To Moses, he says, I'm going to rescue my people from Pharaoh and I'm going to give them their own land and I will communicate who I am to the whole world through my people. And then what happens? God parts the Red Sea and the Hebrew people walk through it as on dry ground. And God leads them to the promised land. God is faithful. Through much of the Old Testament, there was this foreshadowing that one day God would send a Messiah to redeem his people from their sin. And you kind of see it. It's it's almost like this funnel down where We see these promises, these these foreshadowings, and then they become more and more specific. God spoke through the prophets an even more refined promise of a deliverer. Isaiah told us that the Messiah would suffer and be pierced uh, for our sins, and that through his suffering, a a healing would take place between us and and God the Father. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and and he's the exact representation of, of God the Father. And he predicts that he will be killed and three days later, he'll rise from the dead. And then what happens? The resurrection. That's exactly what happened. If God said it, we can believe it. There's no one like that in our lives. God is the only one who's 100% faithful. And so that's why you and I can build our lives around the nature and character of God. When he says he'll do something, we can trust that he will do it. If he says he's going to do it, he will. And that's why Paul ends his prayer with that phrase, he will surely do it. Now with that said, you know, we need to know what he has promised us and just as importantly, we need to know what he hasn't promised us. I think we get into a lot of trouble when we think he's promised us something he hasn't. A great example would be the trials that we've experienced this year because of this virus. We've had several years of boom in our economy and we like that. We like it when things go our way. But when we have a downturn, we begin to go, God, where are you? Like, why are you allowing us to suffer? When God never promised that you and I wouldn't experience pain and, and suffering in this life. Remember these people Paul was writing to, they experienced all kinds of afflictions. Paul even told them in the beginning of chapter three to plan on it. Affliction and suffering are coming your way. It's normal. You know, it's normal for humans living in a fallen world that's full of sin to suffer. And it's normal for Christians to experience that same suffering. And even more than that, to experience opposition because of our faith. and So these are good days to inspect your foundation. And if you find that there is a fault in your foundation, if there's a crack, good days to get those things kind of patched up and firmed up. Maybe it needs, your foundation needs to be broadened or it needs to be deepened best day to see that happen is today. Today, you can begin to know and trust the revealed character of God. How? What I'd encourage you to do is increase the amount of time you spend in God's word. Because God has given us his word so that we can know who he is and what he's promised us. And so by going to his word, we get a much clearer sense of who he is and, and what he's about. And so Paul ends his letter with these four quick requests. Verse, the first one is verse 25. He asks these people to pray for him. And we would ask you to pray for us. Pray for me. If you remember me, pray for me. I could use all the prayer support that I can get. Mark would say the same thing. All of our pastors here would say the same thing and our staff. Pray for us. Two, verse 26, he encourages these people to to greet each other with a holy kiss. Obviously, pre-COVID-19, right? So, um, but what is going on here is we just see the closeness of relationship in the church, and that's what we're to imitate. We're to have these kinds of relationships with each other, Verse, the third one, verse 27, he, he, Paul tells them to read this letter out loud to each other. And the reason for that is because in the church, in this church, there were a lot of illiterate people. And so if Paul didn't have somebody read that letter to him, they couldn't read it for themselves. And so Paul says, read that to them. The fourth one and the final one in verse 20 is just a final reminder of grace. Well, this letter, I tell you, has been so enjoyable to teach through and 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 i've said this almost every time i've i've preached that as i'm preaching this to you i'm really preaching this right back to me and i'm preaching it right to my heart i want to end our time with a quote from a writer who i think really nails what paul's driving at here as he brings this letter to an end this writer says this the prayer that paul offers is based on god's character God is trustworthy in in every respect and so all believers are secure in him. We have, and I love this phrase, invincible confidence. Invincible confidence. As our hope doesn't rest on our own efforts to live up to God's standards, but on the faithfulness of God who never fails to fulfill his promises or to keep his covenant. In other words, it's not our feeble hold of God that makes us secure, but it's God's strong hold of us. That's why our hope is not in vain. That's why we need not fear the approaching day of judgment. Our certainty is wrapped up in God, who will complete what he has begun. Our sanctification and preservation are guaranteed in him. Isn't that so good? So the church is at her best when she lives out her faith on the foundation, the rock-solid foundation of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Let's be the church at her best. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today for, for Jesus. We're so thankful that You came for us, that you made a way for us, that you rescued us. You are our deliverer. God, we are so thankful today for for your word, that you've given us this this passage, this this text to look at so that we can better understand who you are. And we see all these awesome things about who you are, that we can build our life around the foundation of the faithfulness of God and, and your power to keep us. And the fact that you are the God of peace and you're the one who's sanctifying us. And so God, we today want to trust you more. We want to lean in more to what you're doing in our life. And we want you to have your way in us. We thank you so much for today. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.